Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to another edition of More Perfect Union. Today, we return once again to the topic of the Supreme Court. Where are we? Where do we want to take it? Where do we want to go? We can look back at the history and we can look forward to what kind of Supreme Court do we want? Do we deserve? Are we forming? I'm Peter Jay. With me today, our representative on the Hill, Jeff Roy. Jeff, how are you doing? Pete, I am doing absolutely fantastic because I'm on the heels of just completing the FY23 state budget uh, <laughs> last night. And I can't tell you what a tremendous relief it is once you get those uh, those budgets uh, done. So oh, you're I not going to find me in a better mood ever. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Michael Walker-Jones is with us. Good morning, sir. Good morning, and it seems like this is a wonderful day for all of us to be celebrating. Indeed. And with us once again, Chris Wolf. Chris, hello. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you, Peter. Excellent. Topic on the table, SCOTUS. Uh, obviously, at this point in time, uh, it has been in the news a lot as one of the three major branches of government. And just to sort of uh, jump in, you know, we've been hearing a lot about potential for court packing. What do the Dems feel about it? What do the Republicans feel about it? We know the recent history during the Trump administration where there was a rush to fill the court seats and at times when court seats have been quite frankly denied, which is how Merritt Garland became our attorney general after the fact. Um, so all that said, I'll just put out my notion out there that I am just somewhat troubled by having a Supreme Court, which when you don't look at it as the number of, of people as a political statement, but you look at it as the number of people purely as a mathematical statement, I would like to see more granularity in the court findings. That is, I, for one, would love to see the tighter court decisions come down with something less than a 10% variance. Right now, with nine justices on the court, uh, if it's a 5-4 decision, uh, you're looking at a variance you know, that flips back and forth by greater than 10% based on one judge. That's not a lot of granularity in my mind with respect to divining the finer points of law and the Constitution, which is, of course, their charter. So uh, I, would, I would advocate for 11 judges, which gets us below that point at least. Then after that, 13, 15, some odd number becomes arguable for other reasons. But I would say that 11, in my mind personally, uh, is, is at least a, a logical argument to be made for how the Supreme Court works. Uh, any thoughts? For the sake of work in terms of the Supreme Court, and I'm going to throw this to my uh, esteemed colleague uh, who happens to know the law because he's a member of the bar, uh, I think that there are 14 uh, judicial, federal judicial districts. And if that's the case, I think we ought to have 14 justices, if not 15. And here's why. Right now, the Supreme Court has to divide itself up in terms of oversight for those federal districts. Interesting and, point. And they are uh, constantly complaining about the workload, both at the lower level in terms of things not getting up quickly enough and at the Supreme Court in terms of we're really working our clerks like little gerbils here. 
So, so that's one rationale. The other rationale is that I believe you're absolutely right, Pete, that we have such a paucity of justices at this point that the decisions really are not reflective of the country and that we need to expand the court if for no other reason than to expand the thought process. Um, in particular, when you look at how some of those justices are chosen, that is, if it's a if it's a Republican president, then the Federalist Society plays a large part in terms of selection, which is a fairly closed and homogeneous type of uh, thinking amongst those who are part of the Federalist Society. And I also believe, too, that it's, you know, that it's important to expand that thought process, which I think uh, uh, the most recent uh, confirmation hearings uh, sort of exposed. And then finally, my final point for us to chew on is that when you go back to some of the more critical decisions of the court, and in particular, this one goes kudos to uh, my friend Jeff, who turned me on to a book called The Great Dissenter. Ah. And it happened to be, uh, it's written about the lone dissent in the Plessy versus Ferguson case, which uh -huh. I never really uh, realized until just recently. And I want to send a kudo out to my son-in-law, who his production company is in the throes of doing some great work, potentially, in terms of trying to put together a documentary about the Plessy versus uh, Ferguson decision. Uh, but I never realized how important that dissent was mm. because that dissent became the rally cry for the civil rights movement for the next 50 years, almost word for word. Uh, they took uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan, who happens to be a fellow Kentuckian, and they took his words and literally parsed them 50 years into the future. Uh, so the dissent then, in that case, it was a 7-1 decision. Uh -huh. Seven of the justices who literally stopped any progress or moving toward a more perfect union when it came to our citizens and people of color in particular in terms of their rights. And now I'm looking at a 6-3 court uh, where we're moving basically in the same direction under the same kinds of uh, of thought processes as the uh, Plessy-Ferguson court, simply because of ideology, not because of law, not because of. And so that's, again, another reason why I think the court needs to be expanded. But at the same time, we also need to have some reforms uh, of the court. Your thoughts? Well, I, for one, look at, you know, the you know, because we go back to the Constitution all the time. I and mean, that's the Supreme Court's job is to measure, take a metric of laws that Congress creates and enforces and to divine the degree to which those laws are constitutional or not, or if they simply take a given case and push it back down to the lower courts. And with respect to constitutionality, it gets us into the argument of the Constitution as a living, breathing document, all the amendments included, versus the Constitution as written back in the day. And uh, I think it's the hiding place. Let me position this. I think it's the hiding place for a lot of, of politics. In other words, if you have a conservative view, you are more likely to have a stricter interpretation of the Constitution as written back in the day. If you are perhaps more left-leaning, I think that there may be more of an affinity for interpreting the Constitution against the social mores of the present day uh, and what society's needs are. So I think that there is perhaps arguably some relationship between political ideology and the way the Constitution is interpreted, and with that, how the appointments to the court are made. Well, I, I do first want to jump in and say, Michael, I am absolutely thrilled that you uh, grabbed a copy of The Great Dissenter and uh, enjoyed it as thoroughly as I did. 
um, because it is one of those uh, great descents that truly did lead to the landmark uh, case of, of Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, and it took that long uh, to do it. But that's the beauty of uh, Supreme Court decision making in that uh, in order for uh, an opinion to um, have its desired effect, the court has to adopt a written opinion that has to be signed on to by at least five members in the, mm-hmm. of, of the nine for it to be um, for it to become the law of the land and and the law that's set out in uh, the United States Supreme Court reports is uh, just as good as a law or a statute that's passed by the United States Congress and uh, it, it has tremendous implications for the society I, I'm still not at that point where I'm convinced that we need um, a greater number of justices. I'm anxious to uh, read uh, the commission report about expanding the court to see uh, what is said on that issue. But uh, I'm not sure having, uh, for example, Pete, you had suggested 11 members of the court, that would simply get us to a 6-5 court as opposed to a 5-4 court. Right. I don't think we're going to get to that position where we can avoid uh, these close calls, and they're not always close calls. I mean, um, right. United States versus Richard Nixon turning over the tapes was uh, a, a unanimous court, even though uh, several of the justices had been appointed uh, by Richard Nixon. But I still do uh, agree wholeheartedly that there are a number of decisions that, uh, as much as the Supreme Court may kick and scream and say, we're not political. Uh, they are nothing but political decisions. And, uh, but that also leaves open the fact that these folks are human beings, just like uh, you and I. They are influenced by their uh, external uh, environment uh, that they're in. They're influenced by what they read, what they write. Uh, so this certainly is going to be a uh, political influence. But I love the fact that they are required to issue an opinion. So uh, you've got your majority opinion. And uh, then those who disagree with that result have an opportunity to issue what is called a dissenting opinion. Right. And sometimes, I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, wrote a whole book about uh, her dissents. And it's fascinating reading. Uh, This this John Marshall uh, Harlan, who uh, was the subject of the book, The Great Dissenter, uh, wrote a host of dissents over the course of, of his career. Uh, William O. Douglas, who uh, I happen to be a Douglas fan, uh, mm-hmm. is uh, one of the Supreme Court justices who wrote the most number of opinions and uh, wrote a lot of dissents himself. And those dissents um, sometimes put ideas in people's heads, uh, sometimes plant the seed. Uh, for where we as a, a nation need to go and what we can aspire to. And I'm delighted that uh, Harlan had the opportunity to uh, write a decision which became the framework for the civil rights movement. Yes, it took a generation in order for it to happen, but God forbid if we didn't have these opinions and we didn't have uh, this type of discourse going on, uh, perhaps we'd make uh, no progress. Uh, and the final th- thought I want to talk about is uh, I am disturbed by what I see in uh, these confirmation hearings. And um, the confirmation hearings have really denigrated over the last, uh, I'll say, 40 years. Uh, and they've become theatrical. They have become uh, opportunities for senators who don't necessarily share the views of the entire nation, but gives them an opportunity and a platform and a bully pulpit to, you know, sputter useless uh, phrases and ask some of the most ridiculous and silly questions and put our our, uh, Supreme Court candidates in a bottle, which is not what this process is all about. The president of the United States has the constitutional right to appoint those people that he wants to the Supreme Court. The, the, uh, the Senate 
has advice and consent, but they have twisted and turned that advice and consent role into a platform that has really denigrated what should be, you know, uh, almost a, a sanctum uh, of uh, a process that we should be uh, glued to our TVs to enjoy, to see what right. beautiful things can happen in our justice system. And, and it's anything but that. I, I was so disappointed this last round of hearings I, uh, from, from Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, who are supposed to be educated uh, people to ask some of the dumbest questions I have ever seen. And they, they have no shame about bringing that uh, to the fold. So I better stop before I get more trouble. <laughs> political posturing, for sure. I, th- I think, um, yeah. I, I, would, I, I would be cautious about expanding the Supreme Court. I obviously am not wearing rose-tinted spectacles. I can see all the flaws that you're discussing. But the uh, first issue would be practicality. Yes, there's the oversight role of the uh, judicial districts. But then in terms of actually practically having an argument amongst yourselves Nine people is already a lot uh, to uh, manage a, an argument in a judicious way. Um, and, but more practically, where would you stop? Uh, is every eight years when Congress is turned over, are you going to appoint two more justices to the Supreme Court or add two more positions? Because obviously one party or the other is not going to be satisfied if um, the previous party has appointed two a pro Democratic or two pro Republican uh, partisans to the to the bench potential arms race exactly. So how would you cap it? When would it stop? I mean, we could see for our lifetimes that could be manageable. But what are you going to do when you get to fifteen, seventeen Supreme Court justices? And how would you make it stop growing? Right. There's there's no definition of how you would even establish a ceiling. Uh, I I guess I would say that you know when we first started off with nine, uh, the country was far smaller. Um, and, and of course, while the executive branch is unchanging because we have a president, not a committee, uh, Congress has grown as the representation of the people has tracked with the addition of states and the growth of populations. And it begs the question as to whether or not the Supreme Court should remain fixed at size or is there a reason to consider some form of regional awareness of the respective justices as the country continues to expand? So it's just another perspective. But yeah, I don't like the idea of of having an, an open-ended expansionary plan for the courts, but just examining whether or not there is a more modern day reasoned position for something other than nine that then can be fairly static. The Senate has grown, but the the, the House has not expanded that much. Just the constituencies have grown uh, for each state. So yeah, there's a limit to that argument about comparing it to the legislature. Yeah. And I think it's just the opposite, Chris, that the that the Senate has grown only in the sense that we've added more states. Right. The House has grown uh, tremendously because the House is based on population and therefore its expansion is inevitable. Uh, the more the more people we have in the country, the uh, the inevitability that uh, the inevitability uh, <laughs> that that yeah. the House is going to grow. So the uh, the court, however, I don't think that there's that there's any magic number. I don't think nine is a magic number. We've had fewer justices before, but mm-hmm. I do think, uh, again, a real salient argument here is this workload issue. And there are, there are a lot of treatises that have been written by the justices themselves, by the lower court, by the circuit court judges. Uh, and oh, by the way, the accurate number is there are 12 circuit courts um, in the United States. And each one is supposed to have a Supreme Court judicial oversight. That is, you've got someone who, let's say Mm -hmm. if you're in the Fifth Circuit, who is your contact on the court, which helps to expedite things. And then the final piece that I think is a really great argument um, goes to the point Jeff was making, is that there's an obligation on the part of the Supreme Court to write opinions when they have cases. However, two things have started that I don't 
see as really beneficial or in the long term that are going to help us as citizens to move toward a better country. One is the shadow docket. That is this ability of the court to be able to take a case, make a decision, but not write an opinion. For example, mm. in the uh, in the Texas abortion case, they took it. They said, OK, we're not going to comment on the law. We're just going to say we'll uphold your law and put it back in place until we get the case in front of us. Well, that's making law uh, at the time. So the and and that's only a, a sort of a nice popular example. There are other examples recently that the court has uh, has espoused without writing an opinion, and that is dangerous. the The thing that is just really disturbing to me is that the Supreme Court, um, and let me go back to Plessy versus Ferguson, when they made the decision. That is, those who were arguing this case in the state of Louisiana, when they made the decision to change forums from the Louisiana court, which kept striking down their efforts to say it's unfair to have separate but equal, and they went to the Supreme Court, the danger anytime something gets to the Supreme Court is that, as Jeff pointed out, they are about to, in their opinion, create law and an environment that will impact the entire country, not just the state, but the entire country. Right. So separate but equal was OK in Louisiana. The courts reaffirmed that over and over again. So the uh, so the plaintiffs kept, you know, they kept losing that case when they change forum and suddenly the uh, the court decides that, well, OK, now separate but equal is OK. Places like Kansas, California, New York, all now were legally justified in separating the races under Jim Crow laws, where up to that point, it had only been amongst the South primarily. So the Supreme Court is both not only a, 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 a great forum for our national issues to be heard, but it's also the most dangerous legal forum in our system. And I think it needs to have expansion and some reform, some logic to it, uh, Chris, as you said, in terms of, well, how do we define those numbers? I think we can define those numbers in a logical, reasonable way without just making it numerical, but to say, okay, here's workload, here's oversight. We, we must have some kind of balance there rather than just to say we want to expand the court for political or ideological reasons. And I, I just wanted to take a moment to just remember how unusual that principle is, both in space and in time. Uh, here in the U.S., it was really the work of John Marshall, one of the first uh, chief justices to establish the principle that the Supreme Court could uh, interpret the Constitution and define law in that way. Because originally it was seen more, I think, as a, an appellate uh, kind of court for um, uh, just making decisions. And then it became this branch of the constitutional authority uh, through the practice of its early leadership. And the other thing is, uh, in terms of space, just how unusual it is in the rest of the world for uh, a judicial body to be given this kind of authority. In the UK, everything's subordinate to the executive, pretty much, the legislature and the, the, the courts, everything is answerable to the executive. And... Um, somehow they managed to make democracy work there. Um, and uh, looking elsewhere in the world, um, obviously you wouldn't have anything of that nature at all, like in the People's Republic of China or, or something like that. So it's a blessing and a curse in, in that way. And uh, a unique, and we're living in a unique moment and time and space. Um, and Americans, I think, forget how um, exceptional the US is in that regard. I also you know, uh, uh, go ahead. What I was going to uh, talk about, I, I heard some desire to have a regional look at what's going on in the law. And, and Michael, the uh, the twelve circuits that are out there is just that provision. So uh, the twelve circuits, for example, here in Massachusetts, we are part of the first circuit, and the first circuit consists of Massachusetts. Uh, New Hampshire, uh, Vermont, Maine, 
and Rhode Island. I'm not sure Connecticut is with us, but they handle regional disputes in those states. And what the true rule, uh, so their, their object, and um, it's typically a panel of three justices who sit and hear an appeal uh, before the First Circuit, uh, but there are um, uh, more than 10 justices on the First Circuit. They happen to sit in multiple panels of three, and then they issue decisions. So the workload is pretty well distributed throughout the United States through these regional circuits. What the real object of the United States Supreme Court is to handle disputes among the circuits. So you may have the First Circuit issues a decision on a constitutional matter in one direction, and then you'd have the Tenth Circuit would issue an opinion um, that could be polar opposite. And the real role of the United States Supreme Court is to uh, settle those disputes among the circuits about what the Constitution really means. So you have an awful lot of justices throughout the United States who have this tremendous amount of power and authority to issue decisions and make law. And if the case ends at a particular circuit, that becomes the law of the land until a dispute arises. And the Supreme Court jumps in to uh, to handle those disputes uh, among the circuits. And for the workload, um, I would never cry for the United States Supreme Court that they are overworked. Uh, they get to pick and choose what cases that they handle. Uh, you don't have an automatic right to appeal your case to the Supreme Court. They have to issue what is called a writ of certiorari. You can petition to the Supreme Court, say, I have a dispute. I'm not satisfied with the result that I got in the First Circuit. I believe there is a dispute among the circuits on this particular issue of law. Will you please take my case and hear it as the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, in the majority of cases, they say no. Uh, I believe the statistic is somewhere around 300 cases that they'll hear, despite the fact that thousands of cases get uh, petitioned to that court. And I think that also goes to uh, what you called, was it the dock or the secret docket? Uh, those are the, uh, the areas where the Supreme Court decides not to step into a case, but that doesn't mean that they're making an order. What they're simply saying is whatever the decision that the circuit made that we decide not to hear, that is the law of the land. Just think, uh, if you want to think of it in practical terms, uh, think about that decision that was issued by a federal district court judge in Florida about mask mandates on airplanes. Okay, that's one single federal judge in the state of Florida issued a decision that became the law of the land. And it stands as the law of the land until that decision works its way up. It'll first go to the federal circuit uh, down in Florida, but it could make its way up to the Supreme Court. But uh, there's a there. Uh, my point in all of this discussion is that we have an awful lot of federal justices weighing in and making law. And we only rely on the Supreme Court to uh, iron out those differences that, that uh, certainly do, do arise in conflicts among the circuits. That one, yeah, uh, but let me jump. Uh, but let me jump in, Jeff, because the, uh, the shadow docket is not a matter of whether they accept the case or not. They can make a ruling without writing it out in terms of an opinion. And again, I refer back to the Texas case where you have a unique kind of law that was created in Texas to try to avoid judicial review, which on its face is unconstitutional. And yet the Supreme Court decides, well, we're we ultimately are probably going to hear this case. But until we do, Texas, go ahead and do what you want to do. And there was no well thought opinion about that. They just said, we're going to leave the Texas law 
as it stands. So go ahead and operate and we'll deal with the aftermath later. That's the shadow docket. But they're not letting the law stand. What they're saying in that particular circumstance, and look, I want them to hear that case. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> what they're saying is a dispute has not arisen yet. And the Supreme Court is not in the business of issuing advisory opinion about what we think is good law or bad law. We only intervene when there's a dispute. So a lawsuit has to be filed in Texas under that particular statute. And the plaintiff has to go through the federal district court and then the, uh, the circuit court of appeals and then present that dispute to the Supreme Court. What, what was attempted in that uh, Texas case was, hey, we know this is going to end up being a dispute. Uh, let's not waste everybody's time and let's hear right. it right away. And, and the Supreme Court, as they have the ability to do, said, nope, we're not going to hear it until a dispute has arisen. Wow. Well, isn't that uh, one of the dangers you highlighted earlier, that uh, if it does go to the Supreme Court and there is a decision that could overthrow Roe v. Wade? In the, under the court's current composition. I think that also, uh, and even with respect to the Texas law, there's, there's the notion that when the Supreme Court does hear it, hopefully they will, I agree, as with many of their other decisions that carry with it some controversy. I, I think that it's interesting to underscore the importance of the dissenting opinion. And I think that, you know, Jeff, you were talking about the dissenting opinions earlier, but I would add to your thoughts the fact that the dissenting opinion can serve as a long-term cautionary tale. In other words, this is the way we see it at this point in time. And just like Plessy, the finding of a powerful dissenting opinion that although dissenting, it carries weight, it carries more information, it carries a counterbalancing perspective that sometimes society can't ignore in the long run. And by the way, the dissenting opinion, I think, can affect other decisions yet to come. In other words, we see the Supreme Court tackling perhaps several laws from several different directions with respect to uh, states' laws on abortion or other controversial topics. And, and I think Chris introduced us to the one decision right. that is going to be exactly that uh, I, I don't think it's going to be surprising if this Supreme Court comes in and overturns Roe v. Wade. That would be a seismic shift. Uh, the, un, uh, the dismantling of 50 years of case law could happen overnight uh, by that Supreme Court. And I will share with you, uh, Massachusetts was so concerned with the prospect of overturning Roe v. Wade that uh, two years ago, uh, we passed the Roe Act to codify the law that was set in the Roe versus Wade opinion, actually codify it in law so mm -hmm. that even if Roe versus Wade were overturned at the federal level, Commonwealth of Massachusetts would still retain the, uh, the leading law from that case. And states are permitted under our uh, federal system to uh, afford more civil rights than uh, than other states. Uh, I'm I'm not standing sitting here uh, as a states' rights advocate. Um, I, I think it would be a horrible thing for the nation for uh, Roe versus Wade to be uh, overturned. But this is a prime example where I anxiously await the dissenting opinions from the three. Uh, justices on the case. And, I, and it wouldn't surprise me if we have even one of the conservative members uh, raise an issue in a dissent with uh, overturning such a, such a law. So it's, we are in the, the throes of an amazing uh, time uh, with the Supreme Court. And that decision is going to be issued before the end of July in 2022. So fasten your seatbelts, mm. uh, my brothers and sisters, because we are in for uh, a, a, an amazing paradigm shift uh, at the Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah. And, and Chris, Jeff, uh, Pete, I got to tell you this, that has crawled up my particular spine in this particular issue 
goes back to Plessy versus Ferguson again. Yes. And I think many of us not realizing that it's not as simple as in terms of the words as the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Uh, let me pull it apart without getting too deep into the weeds real quick. There are two principles that I think that are going to be challenged here. One of them is the constitutional authority authorizing a right to privacy. This Supreme Court, in its reversal of Roe v. Wade, will come up with some logic as to why the, why the Constitution of the United States does not authorize citizens to have a right to privacy. Now, that's going to stand in the face of both the First Amendment, the 14th Amendment. I mean, you, you know, take your pick. The second principle that's going to be challenged, and you hit the nail on the head, Jeff, is states' rights, mm -hmm. which is now going to throw us back almost 100 years into the argument of who has supremacy here. Can the federal courts create laws uh, or create interpretations that are valid for the entire country? Or are there certain laws that are so sacrosanct that the federal government can't touch them. And that's what some of the 1870s, 1890s, the early uh, 1900s saw in this country was a movement that the state is supreme, that the state has to go. And if the state says abortion is illegal, that's, that's the way it's going to be. And that's what I'm afraid that this court is about to do. Throw us into chaos because they're going to say, well, we're the overturning of Wade won't be a matter of just eliminating, uh, you, you know, totally your ability to have some privacy with your doctor. They're going to throw it all back to the states, which means then that if the Constitution doesn't grant me a right to privacy and if the state has supremacy, to grant me either a right to privacy or no, then my living in Texas will be different than my living in Massachusetts as a private citizen. Yes. And for me, you know, let me let me give you a, a little uh, background on that right to privacy, because it fits in perfectly with what we're talking about in the role of the dissenting opinion. So uh, the right to privacy began in. Uh, it's not in the Constitution, those exact words, but it began with a law review article, and uh, one of the law review articles was written by Louis D. Brandeis, and then Brandeis later got on the Supreme Court and began to uh, expand his ideas on the right to privacy in the Olmstead versus United States decision back in 1928, and he did it in a dissenting opinion, right. and then it took until the 1960s before the Supreme Court actually adopted that idea and said, indeed, there is a right to privacy, and we're going to recognize that right to privacy. And that was from the numbers of a, uh, of a number of amendments. And again, I'll bring you back to my, my uh, I'm a fanboy of uh, William O. Douglas. He wrote that <laughs> as, uh, decision in Griswold versus Connecticut. But again, it was uh, a dissenting opinion uh -huh. that took nearly 50 years to become the law of the land. So I just wanted to throw that out. I didn't yeah. mean to interrupt it, but I thought it fit in perfectly with, with what you were saying. You know, well, it's a great underscoring of what I was talking about earlier with respect to the, the power of the dissenting opinion as a cautionary tale right. that has a long tail in government and informs us as society changes. That's full a great example. Yeah, I think yeah. the, the poor women who don't have a generation to wait you know their needs are immediate that's right or yes. will be i know it's just uh that that's the the crushing weight of this moment it's gut-wrenching yeah and full disclosure uh brandeis another one of my kentucky homeboys uh and by the way they named the law school that i went to after uh, justice brandeis as a matter of fact at the university of louisville so uh so a lot of connections there and it is important again, I think for our listeners to understand and, and Chris, you hit the nail on the head, these kinds of decisions, we don't have 50 years 
to wait anymore when we have been moving in what I would call a towards a more perfect union, towards a betterment and a better understanding, and then to have the Supreme Court to throw us back into those chaotic times that we've already experienced, I think is a setback for all of us, but in particular, those women and their doctors who are sitting there going, wait a minute, do I go back to the 1950s now? Do I have to then choose which state I can either live in or go to if I have a uh, a personal decision I have to make around uh, carrying a pregnancy uh, uh, up to at least the limit of when I might be able to make a decision about an abortion. Uh, you, you know, these things I think are critical and crucial uh, to our everyday lives. And I don't think that we as citizens pay enough attention to them. So I also think that, you know, laws that are, are written as uh, in very novel ways, like the notion that the Uber driver could be sued for, for taking someone to the airport if they had provable knowledge of why the trip was being made. Also, too, um, I want to shift gears here a little bit and, and sort of open this up to the idea that back then, obviously, society was fairly left-leaning, more liberal. Today, we've become overall more conservative. But, but also, too, be it left, right, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, blue, red, we have seen this stretching to the outer bounds of the extreme left and the extreme right. And in that stretching of Congress that, you know, fewer and fewer people want to play the game on the 50-yard line, that seems to me to generate something that I might call collateral damage with respect to the court. In other words, the court is being asked and tasked more and more to pick a side, dramatically so. And so it's forcing the court into the public arena, perhaps in a way that was not quite so forced 40, 50 years ago. Uh, or maybe I just wasn't aware then. I was blissfully walking around, you know, wondering what was on TV tonight. Uh, but uh, so well, there, my, there my... is a there is a parallel, though, Pete, isn't there, between in the 1960s, a lot of uh, conservative thinkers were saying, well, the Supreme Court's been ambushed and hijacked by an activist set right. of justices. And their anxiety then mirrors our anxiety today. I mean, you can argue that the morality is on one side or the other, but the um, the issue about uh, anxiety about Supreme Court and its right. future um, has, a, has a parallel. I, I don't want to shift gears too much, but I do want to follow up in a, um, in a somewhat theoretical way uh, to what uh, all three of you have been talking about. And uh, when I first came into office and um, I put a picture up on my wall, and I know that the, the listeners at home can't see it, but all those pictures uh, right over my right shoulder uh -huh. uh, have some particular meaning. Assort, but this one picture was uh, the Time magazine cover from September 8th, 1961. That's the day I was born. And it's a picture of Nikita Khrushchev coming out of a ball of fire from an atomic explosion and, and pointing his finger. And people come into my office and they say, why on earth would you have a picture of Nikita Khrushchev up on your wall? And I say, that picture is up on my wall because that's what the world was like the day I came into it. And my object of being in government and being in public service is to make sure that we don't return to a world like I came into uh, on this planet. And it frightens me when I see some of the decisions uh, that come out of the Supreme Court, when I see a country like Ukraine mm. attacked uh, in the way, and I see um, you know, an inability of the United States of America to step in and try to prevent these atrocities, uh, which are certainly, I, I do believe, will be uh, determined to be genocide at some point in the future. It just concerns me that uh, people don't just get up and, and, and say, we cannot continue down this road. We were making such progress 
right. um, through through the years, this, the, the 60s and 70s and, and leading up to today, we've done so well. And I know it doesn't feel well for some people, but we have made a lot of progress. And when we seem to be shifting and turning around and heading back in the wrong direction, and uh, I want, uh, I wish we had callers so they could call in and, and, and help us and determine how we can stop this. But, uh, you know, monitoring what's happening at the Supreme Court is probably one of the most important things you can do as a citizen in this republic. And uh, sending the right people uh, into elected office is one of the most important things you can do as a citizen in this republic. And, and getting people on the ballot. Uh, who support the ideals of, of what progress is all about is an important function of you as a citizen in the Republic. So send the right people, uh, make the right noise. And uh, as uh, my dear friend John Lewis would say, raise good trouble. Jeff, I think you're suggesting a, a topic for a future uh, uh, podcast on uh, civics education. I think that's yes. a, a huge yawning gap in this country right now. I think so. In past two, Chris, we've also talked about the Jeffersonian principle about an educated society being the 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 best defense for a good government, a democratic government, um, and how it is that you promote that in a rising tide of noise and disinformation. Uh, I also think you know that yes, it's a topic for another program that will come soon to a speaker near you. Uh, the uh, we have much also to talk about with where things are going with high tech uh, and and so on. Uh, well, let me add this closing comment on my part, I, because this group, similar to my desire to make sure that we've got a lot of different perspectives at all levels of our government and in our courts, because I have a different kind of fear than you guys, because I have seen from a person of color perspective, yeah. how cruel, how evil, how, how demagoguery this country can be. I have seen with my own eyes how the legalization, for example, of Jim Crow contributed to the mental instability of a whole class of people in this country. I have seen how women have been subjected to both uh, atrocities, abuse, legally in this country, how people have in this country been uh, had their ability to love who they want to love, challenged, taken away, and made illegal in this country. Our courts are so very much important to our everyday existence. And for me to have that kind of fear, and again, I wish I could just give you for a moment that particular perspective in terms of what I'm seeing, Jeff, going, you know, taking us backwards, that you would then hopefully share that heightened sense of what I call disbelief, that we could be in a country where we think we are starting to treat each other with kindness, with respect. And yet, at the same time, I'm watching all of that disintegrate right in front of my eyes when people of color are being villainized simply because they are people of color. When women in this country are being subjected to the authority of male dominance right in front of our eyes, when you look at these state legislatures and the laws that are being created, and then you juxtapose that to the history of both the compromise that created a system of slavery and then authorized it, the compromises that kept poor people poor, and that the compromise that led to only those of privilege could vote, we must be careful here. We cannot allow this country to what I would call dissolve back into those kinds of not only tribal fiefdoms, but also into that that illogic, I guess, if you will, of the law helping to support all of these what I call, uh, uh, you know, cruel endeavors. So keep in mind that your perspective about this 
is much different than mine, shaded because I see it through a different lens. But I don't think, uh, 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 but I do believe that all of us share a passion and concern to see us not go into that uh, and to not move in that direction. And with that, uh, I hope our listeners will heed your advice, uh, Jeff, that they will take it, you know, uh, you know, take interest in not only who's elected, but getting people that you have, uh, even if it's just a personal interview or some kind of look at who they are, getting those people elected and then trying to change it, even if it's one person at a time. I would also underscore, by the way, the uh, the recent Supreme Court hearings as a source and permission slip for some of the intellectual dissolution that we are witnessing. And there was a recent article I read about how certain uh, lawmakers that were involved in all of that circus probably are going to see themselves being punished in some way. Uh, in other words, it's going to leave a mark. It's going to leave a taint on their, on their uh, record. You know, when you look back and really see that they're on the wrong side of history. Um, and most recently, Kevin McCarthy uh, being uh, in, the public, uh, in the public sphere, where clearly his original reactions to what was going on on January 6th perhaps were more honest than what followed, uh, including his concerns for the entire party and some of the people's behavior within it. And then he had to tamp all that down uh, for the sake of preserving stature and power. And I think uh, here again, I, I, I mentioned earlier the fact that nobody wants to play the game on the 50-yard line anymore. Everybody wants to be in the red zone immediately. And it's, it's really become a full contact game. Uh, and it's, it's having, I think, an adverse effect on a public that is perhaps all too eager to simplify things in their mind and just go with the soundbite rather than really understanding the nuance of what's going on. That said, I think that, <laughs> I think that one of the things we did was we really did a big zoom back there from the Supreme Court to all of the legislature and, and, and where we are in society today, which is one of the things we do, don't we? <laughs> and if you have an opinion, we would love to hear from you. If you have a thought on what we talked about today or a thought about topics that we should cover, things that you would like to hear us address and include your opinions in those discussions, we would really love to hear from you. You can contact us at info at Franklin TV, I-N-F-O at Franklin TV. We would really love to hear from you and you can help us with our journey toward a more perfect union. For Chris Wolf. For Jeff Roy, for Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, I'm Peter Jay. Thank you for being with us today. This is Franklin Public Radio.